Dear Lord, we do just so look forward to uh, what you have promised for us and what you have planned for us. We thank you that this world is not our home and that we have a heavenly home that you are preparing for us. And I thank you that uh, while we are here, you are faithful to lead us and guide us on this path to glory. And Lord, I thank you that you're working in our lives and you're desiring to change us and to grow us in the grace and knowledge of your Son. And I pray as we come to your word today that you would just do that, that you would uh, break through any hard hearts, that you would soften them, and that with the soft hearts you would work in them that which is pleasing. So we thank you for this morning. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what do you think of when you think of a presentation? Um, I mean, probably the most common presentation that we have in our culture may be like a graduation ceremony or something like that, where someone has worked very hard for many years and got to a point where they're uh, presented specifically a diploma, but they're the ones that are being presented because they're receiving that diploma. Well, if you think about the Christian life, there's going to be a presentation for us where we are presented before the Lord. And within that presentation, there's going to be ramifications concerning what happened during this life. Now, we know that we're not going to be judged for sin. Sin was taken care of on the cross. But there's going to be rewards and loss rewards. And so when we all get to heaven, we will all, in Christ, get there. But some, based on what was done in this life, may receive less eternal rewards than others. Now, we're going to see that those rewards are tied up in the context of God's glory forever and ever and ever. And today, we're going to see the Apostle Paul was focused on and hoped in uh, presenting these Thessalonians before the Lord and where they would be spiritually when God completed that work. So would you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be finishing chapter 2 today, looking at verses 17 to 20, and we're going to see how we can know that God's word is at work in us, because for those in whom it is at work in, we'll see there are eternally rewarding relationships. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse uh, 17 to 20. And let me share some context. We know from Acts chapter 16 that the Apostle Paul and his companions were led by the Spirit to go to Macedonia and share the gospel in Philippi. And they did. And after the jailer and Lydia and her household were saved, they were uh, treated shamefully and beaten. And they journeyed some 50 miles well, before that. But then after that, they journeyed some 50 miles west of Thessalonica. And then in chapter 17 of the book of Acts, we have the account of Paul coming to Thessalonica and sharing the word, sharing from the scriptures for three weeks. And we know from our passage in our book that these Thessalonians received the word of God. They were saved. Now, after going to Thessalonica, he was driven out, as we'll see today. He went to Berea to preach the word. And then he went on to Athens and then on to Corinth. Now, while he was in Athens, he was concerned, as we heard read earlier in 1 Thessalonians 3, concerned about the faith of the Thessalonians. They were going through many difficulties. And he was concerned that the tempter might have tempted them in the midst of that. 
And so he sent Timothy to find out how they were doing in their faith and to encourage them and strengthen them. And Timothy came back to the Apostle Paul, gave him the report when he was in Corinth that they were doing well and they longed to see them. They're doing well in the Lord and in the faith. And so the Apostle Paul, from that report, writes this letter that we have of 1 Thessalonians. And we saw in chapter 1 that he was so thankful for their true salvation, what they had observed, first of all, their uh their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, their labor of love and their steadfast hope in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they had responded to the gospel, the, the, that the Spirit of God had, had brought forth the convicting gospel, and they had responded, and they had turned to God from their idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. And then we came to chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul begins to defend himself in the manner in which he came to the Thessalonians. And that defense, as we see, and we'll see part of that today, implies that there were those in Thessalonica that were trying to stir up the Thessalonians to maybe have a bad attitude towards the Apostle Paul. And so Paul had to remind them, and he reminds them, you'll see things like you yourselves know uh, those type of statements about the manner in which he came and shared with these Thessalonians. And then... He shared within that that they came from the right motives. They imparted God's word from the right motives. And they also imparted their lives with these Thessalonians unto the goal that they would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls them into his eternal kingdom. And then we saw in verse 13 how we are to grow in our relationship, chapter 2, 13, with Christ that as these Thessalonians had received and then internally accepted the word, you can receive it outwardly, but they internally accepted it, not as man's word, but the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. We see that God was working in them. And it's from here the Apostle Paul begins to show the evidences of God working in them through his word. And so let me read through, our passage will be starting at verse 17, but let me back up and we'll read up through what we've seen and where we'll be today. Let's start at verse 13. And for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And then what we saw in our last time in 1 Thessalonians, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. And now our passage. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope? Our joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. 
Now, as we look at this, I want to point out some of the flow of thought of this passage. Again, I've mentioned this twice already, but verse 13 speaks about how God works in our lives. The word which performs its work in you. And then verse 14, he says four, and he explains the manner in which they've, the word is working. And that is the portion we're in. And then last week we saw, or last time we saw that the first evidence of God's working, word working in their lives was that, uh, they brought, it brought forth temporal sufferings. You remember that? Look at verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. The for, he says, hey, God's word doing its work in you. For, he explains, you became, explaining the work of the word in their lives. You became mimics or imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. That's in Israel. For that you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. He's saying the word is at work in you as evidenced by the suffering at the hands of your own people, non-believing Thessalonians, just like Jewish believers suffered at the hands of their own non-believing countrymen when they came to faith. And we talked about that last time. We looked at all the examples. Even the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarshish, was one who would persecute those who came to faith before he came to faith. You see, God's word performs its work in us who believe, and if it does and performs that work, we're going to uh, then trust the Lord and we're going to manifest his character. Not all the time, but we're going, to, we're going to manifest his character. And when we do, we're going to be persecuted at times. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He'll say later on, on account of me. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in the book of John, in this world, you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Suffering, not all the time, but suffering sometimes because you're a Christian, as we see throughout Scripture, is an evidence that you have been changed. You've, you've been changed. These pagans no longer ran with their former pagans. They were idolaters into gross idolatry in Thessalonica, and they turned to God from idols, and that brought about suffering. It brought about suffering. And certainly that suffering was in the kind or like what the Jews received uh, who came to faith from their own Jewish countrymen. There are those who are religious, but they don't know the Lord. And those are often the ones who persecute those who truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. So then there's an evidence to that. And he talks about those people. And Paul then starts to explain a little bit about those Jewish persecutors, which mirror the type of persecution in which these Thessalonians had received. He says, who killed, verse 15, the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. That's, that's what they are. They're the ones that delivered him up by the hands of godless men, Acts chapter 2. They killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Jesus said, which one of the prophets did not your fathers kill? As he addressed those Pharisees and drove us out. It's the same people that were persecuting the apostle Paul. He says, they're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. And we saw that, that there are those who come in the name of God. The Jews would say, we follow Yahweh, we follow the Lord. But they're not pleasing to God. They're actually hostile because, notice what he says, they were hindering, verse 16, us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. 
The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. God has ordained the means of the gospel, the message going forth, the truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Jesus Christ, who died for us, the truth of the gospel. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And yet there are those who were hindering the same type, the same cloth as the persecutors of those Thessalonians. But he says, with the result, middle of 16, they are always fill up the measure of their sins. Hey, their, their sins are filling up to the brim. To the brim. But God is patient and he gave, gives men every chance to repent. We see that in 2 Peter chapter 3. He's patient, not willing for any to perish. But yet that time will come. His judgment will come. He does allow sin to run its course, but yet even within that, he turns evil to good. The most evil that you could ever think of, crucifying the Lord of glory, turned to the greatest good, bringing salvation for those who would believe. Tremendous reality. And he says in the end of verse 16, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. God's wrath is upon these persecutors. Hey, yes, you are suffering, Thessalonians. You're suffering, and it's just like those who came to faith in Judea. But you're suffering because you've been changed. God's word is working at you, for you endured the same things. They were not like those in the parable of the, of the sower, who, who once they, they received the word with joy, they were so happy, but yet when persecution came, they immediately went away, because they, the word had no true root in their heart. These are true believers, and even though it was difficult, that same difficulty Paul was sharing is that which should encourage them. And then he comes from this point, moving into our passage, which we'll see today, where I believe we'll see another evidence within the Thessalonians, but also within true believers, of having a real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we know God's word is at work in us? First of all, there will be some temporal suffering for obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, we're going to see today that the word, the welcoming of the word, brought about eternally rewarding relationships. You're going to have changed relationships when you are truly saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And our passage, verse 17, but, notice the, the it's, he's continuing a thought there. That's why I read from before, coming up to this portion. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, in person not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Our passage begins with somewhat of a contrast. It's certainly a conjunction. It's not as heavy as, a, as some other Greek contrasts. could be translated and at times, but there is, a, there is a conjunction here. It's connecting what we saw before. It's connecting what we just reviewed, that God's, work was at, God's word was at work in them as evidenced by the fact they suffered by the hands of their countrymen. And now the Apostle Paul continues in that, sharing that uh, within that, God's wrath was upon them to the utmost, but, but with you, something's different. And we truly desire to see you greatly because something is different with you. We desire to see you greatly. But we, brethren, verse 17, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager 
with great desire to see your face. Again, we saw the Apostle Paul earlier in chapter 2 defending himself. You yourselves know. You, you know. He's saying, hey, remember how we came. We didn't come this way, but we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. You remember the accusations earlier in chapter 2, the accusations of them most likely seeking glory among men or, or money or flattering to gain advantage. Paul says, we didn't do that. We didn't come to you that way. You know we were not like that. The implication is someone was probably saying that's what Paul's in it for. Paul's in it for the money. And here the implication as he continues in a sense to defend himself is that someone's probably saying Paul doesn't care about your suffering at all. Look at it. He hasn't come back yet. He doesn't care a thing about you. Paul doesn't care about you. You are suffering for for what you heard from him. And what do you hear from Paul? Nothing. He doesn't care about you at all. That's probably what was going on. You see, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. They will come in deceiving and being deceived. They slander. They're like Satan. They divide. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And so that's probably what's going on because he goes into a discourse now which continues into chapter 3 about why, in a sense, they hadn't come back yet to visit the Thessalonians. And the implication is they were probably being accused in that sense. But from that, we benefit and we gain because the reasons why give us great instruction into the heart of the Apostle Paul towards these believers. And we can learn greatly from it. So he says, but we brethren, he calls them brethren, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. He's already called them brethren twice in chapter 2. And within that, we know that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are brought into the family of God. See how great a love God the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. You see, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought into the family of God. And they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he says, but we, brethren... And now he says, having been bereft of you for a short while. They'd been uh, apart from them for a short while. The term short while there uh, means literally an hour, basically. It's a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech. He's saying, having been bereft of you for a short while. The Apostle Paul came to them and he ministered to them. We see in Acts chapter 17... And then we see that he was ripped away from them. That's what this word bereft means. It means to be orphaned. Having been orphaned, it carries the idea of a child being torn away from a parent or a parent being torn away from a child. There's a family relationship in that thought of that word. Having been torn away from you, our spiritual children, for a little while, in person, but not in spirit. Remember in Acts 17, the Jews had formed a mob of wicked men in the marketplace, set the city in an uproar, dragging off Jason, and then the brethren sent away Paul and Silas by night to avoid these threats and this difficulty through those Jews. And then the Jews of Thessalonica, Acts 17, chased Paul and Silas uh, to Berea and agitated and stirred up crowds there. He's reminding them, we were ripped away from you, our our children, but only for a little while. But notice what he says. 
not in, he says, he says in person, physically, but not in spirit. Term spirit there, cardia, we get our word for, you know, cardiac, whatever it might be, it means heart. Not in heart. Yes, we were ripped away physically, but our hearts are with you, Thessalonians. Our hearts are with you. You see, although we've been chased out of town, we are with you still. Our hearts are with you. You see, Paul was not a hit-and-run evangelist. When he shared the word of God and there was a response, he would stay there and teach uh, the truth until the, the Lord would, would allow certain things for him to be driven, or whatever it might be. He would stay there and share the word of God with those who had responded. And even afterwards, he was continually concerned for the spiritual welfare of those in whom he had been blessed to share the truth of God. He was concerned. He was a concerned spiritual parent for their spiritual well-being, having been ripped from their presence. You see, he was uh, a, a spiritual parent having brought the word of God. And he shared earlier that him and his companions, they really came to them like parents in a sense. He used the illustration of how he imparted the word of God with them, like a nursing mother earlier in chapter 2 who tenderly cares for her children. And then chapter 2, verse 11, we see, he says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, 2.11, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. He had genuine spiritual concern for these Thessalonians, and he desired to see them. Notice what he says. But we were, we brethren, having been bereft, ripped from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. That sounds like a loaded sentence, doesn't it? All the more eager with great desire to see your face. We wanted to see you. Contrary to the implication of those accusations, we wanted to see you. We were ripped from you. Our hearts are still with you. We wanted to see you. You see, the gospel brings new and eternal relationships. And they are based on the love of Christ, a love that we receive in Christ that we didn't have before, one for one another. The Apostle Paul loved these Thessalonians even after a short time. He said they had become very dear earlier or beloved to them. And he was concerned for them spiritually. And part of that concern was manifest in his concern about their attitude towards him. Because he knew if their attitude soured towards him, he wouldn't be able to minister to them the way the Lord would want him to. That's why in chapter 3 he was so thankful that that they always thought kindly of him, that they had a good attitude towards him. They hadn't been poisoned yet. Satan does that, by the way. He'll try to poison your heart towards those who are shepherding you. That's what he wants to do. But Paul was so thankful because because they were standing firm in the faith. We saw that in chapter 3. That was read earlier. So then... They were very dear to him, and he desired all the more eager with great desire to great to see their face, to see their face. But yet there was opposition. There was opposition. Look at uh, at verse 18. For, he's going to explain, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. The Greek literally says both once and twice. That's maybe a, an idiom. 
both once and twice. We wanted to come just more than once. I, Paul, he's explaining. But notice what he says. There was opposition, and yet Satan thwarted us. You know why we haven't come to you yet, Thessalonians? Satan thwarted us. This is the real story, and now for the real story, right? This is what's really going on. We wanted to see you. We're not, we didn't abandon you. We were ripped away from you. We wanted to come to you more than once. Yet Satan thwarted us. He thwarted us. Now this word thwarted is an interesting word. One lexicon says it means to cut in. And the word was originally used of breaking up a road to make it impassable. Make it impassable. And later it was used in a military sense to speak of breaking through an enemy's line. It's also used to speak of someone in an athletic contest, cutting in front of someone, cutting them off in a sense. You might remember last week as we looked at Ephesians 6, we saw that we have an enemy. We have an enemy. And that enemy is God's enemy. It's Satan. Indeed, the name Satan means adversary. He's speaking of the devil, the accuser of the brethren, the serpent of old, the one who is the tempter, who deceives the whole world, who is the God of this world. He is the devil. You see, Satan is a fallen angel, a cherub, who had special privileges. We saw that in Ezekiel 28. But because of his great pride, Isaiah 14, he fell and he took a third of the angels with him, Revelation chapter 12. And he is the one who opposes God and thus his people on a continual basis. He imposes the impartation of God's word and one's life as we serve Christ. And so Paul says, hey, here's what happened. Satan thwarted us. We intended to come back to see you, but Satan thwarted us. They were like a small child needing care spiritually, and they were ripped away from their child, and they wanted to come more than once. But you see, when you're doing what God wants you to do, we're going to have opposition. Now, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against Satan and his wicked cohorts. But yet we see in Scripture the fight manifests in the pawns that he uses, which are people. We see that, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So since our battle is not ultimately against the people coming against us, we don't fight in the physical sphere. We fight in a spiritual sphere, putting on the full armor of God. But we see, like in 2 Corinthians 11, that there are those evil men, they're imposters, they disguise themselves as, as servants of Christ. You see, evil men, there are evil men who do not have faith, who do not have faith. Remember what we saw in 2 Thessalonians? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 3. 2 Thessalonians 3. And let me share uh, verses 1 to 3. Finally, my brethren, you see his humility here, pray for us. Hey, only God can protect us. Pray for us, one, that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. And that we may be, what, delivered from perverse and evil men. That's where the opposition comes. It comes through humanity, but our battle's not against humanity, right? He says, for not all have faith. But notice ultimately what he says here. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you. Here's who's really behind it from the evil one. The evil one is behind the opposition that comes through people. 
So then, Satan opposes those who are following Christ. Satan opposes those who impart the word of God and impart their lives. One pastor writes, So it was Satan who hindered Paul. Satan, the great opposer, the adversary, who puts obstacles in the path of the people of God to attempt to prevent the will of God from being accomplished through them. Don't be surprised if you experience repeated frustration when you try to do something you know is right. Don't be surprised when you're obeying the Lord, doing what is right. Satan thwarts uh, God's people. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service has been opened for me, and there are many adversaries. You see, wide doors, adversaries. Wide doors, adversaries. That's the way it is. So we're told that Satan thwarted Paul from coming back. We're not told how so, but it's obvious that he was successful, at least temporarily. Now, we do realize that Satan has the power in this context to thwart the word of God by thwarting, work of God by thwarting his servants. And if you are desire to serve God, you will be opposed. However, God is sovereign over Satan's evil activities. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Paul doesn't bemoan or whine about Satan. He simply states a fact that this is what happened and he moves on. Satan is on a big leash. He's a defeated foe. His doom is sure. Paul said to the Romans, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And indeed, all of Satan's evil thwarting, God turns to good, the ultimate good, the cross. But even here, how did he turn this thwarting of Paul to good? It's this letter. If Paul would have visited them, he would not have written this letter. And so we have the letter of 1 Thessalonians because God allowed Satan to thwart Paul. Tremendous reality. God turns it for good. He turns it for good. But here the Apostle Paul is telling them why he hadn't been there. So then in his defense, we see Paul reveals a heart of genuine parental concern for these Thessalonians. He was still thinking of them after being ripped away. He had a great desire to see them, but yet was opposed by Satan. That's why he hadn't come back yet. Now, as we move on, we recognize that Paul wanted to see them for a specific reason. We had this read earlier in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, but turn there. Chapter 3, we're going to look at this a little bit here for a second and then come back to it later. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we day and night, night and day, keep praying for you earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. He wanted to see them to complete what was lacking in their faith. He was a spiritual parent who was concerned for them. Concerned for them. The opposite of what the accusations would be. That's the way Satan is. He, he brings lies in there to divide people. But that wasn't the truth. And God turned Satan's thwarting to good, even bringing about this letter. So then, having been thwarted, thwarted by him, we see that he desired to see them. 
And we have even a, a more expansive explanation of why he desired to see them in verse 19. And it's quite amazing. He says, Satan, Satan thwarted us. We wanted to see you. We desired to come eagerly. This is what we desired to do. We were thwarted. Then he goes on to explain, verse 19, back in chapter 2. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Here we see the ultimate reason why Paul wants to come. He wants to build up their faith, but there's something that that brings it to in eternity. Eternally. He says why he wants to desperately see them so badly. For, and he gives a, shares a rhetorical question with the answer. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? What's the answer? Is it not even you? You Thessalonian believers, it's you. And it's you in a future state. It's you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. We're looking forward to your presentation before him when he comes. We're looking forward to that time. Who is our hope? Our joy, our crown of exaltation. It is you, Thessalonians, and that hope, joy, and crown of exaltation will be in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. You see, we know about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come back, the the Lord's day, he will come back in judgment. We know that. He will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. He will do so. But before that, we are not destined for wrath. He will come for believers. John chapter 14, he says, if I go to prepare a place, I will come get you. I'm paraphrasing that where I am, not here, but there you will be. He's preparing that place, John 14. And then later on in the Thessalonians, we see that he will come and take us away. Turn to chapter 4. The Thessalonians were very focused on Christ's coming. And yet some of the believers had died. And they're thinking, wow, did they miss it? What happened to our brothers and sisters? What happened to them? That concerned them. And Paul wanted to comfort them, that they would comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 14, 13. But we do not want you... Excuse me, 4, 13. Not 14, there's no chapter 14. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we did not want you, we do not want you to be uninformed or, or ignorant, not knowledgeable. We don't want you to be that way, brethren, about those who are asleep. That's those who have passed away. That you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. The world grieves because they're never going to see him again. Basically, they know that. They have no hope. They have no true hope. But he says here, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, hey, if you believe the gospel, then even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Fallen asleep in Jesus. Love that. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of our Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be at the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He's saying basically don't grieve about them. They're with Jesus, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Their spirits, their souls are with Jesus, and their bodies are in the grave. 
and those who are alive remain will not precede them. Jesus will come with them and they will be raised. And that point they'll be glorified, right? And then anyone alive who remains will be changed in that moment. And we will meet him in the air. He's not coming to earth at this time. He's coming to take us from earth. The word means forcibly grab. To bring us back, John 14, to the place in which he's prepared. And then he'll go into chapter 5 and talk about his second coming. He'll talk about that in chapter 5, about the day of the Lord. So then the Lord is coming for us. And it's during that time, I believe, when we are presented before him that we come to what is called the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where believers will stand before the Lord. Not for judgment for sin. Sin has been taken care of on the cross. But we will give an account for what we did in this life in the body. It's actually pretty sober when you think about it. You come to faith, you, you don't want to get into heaven by the skin of your teeth and by the smoke of your clothes. Because for all eternity, you will experience the result of that. Not because of sin, but you will not gain those rewards which are tied up in with Christ somehow forever and ever and ever. Let me share a few passages. Romans chapter 14. Turn to Romans 14. There's going to be a presentation before the Lord, and to the level in which we are mature or had matured here on earth, to the level God is glorified, and those who minister to you rejoice, by the way. Okay? There's something that's going on. Paul wants to see them in a certain way, and they are his hope. They are his joy. They are his crown of rejoicing. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 But why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise. So then each one of us, speaking to believers, shall give an account of himself to God. Now the Apostle Paul knew this. He says, therefore, we, 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 we knowing the fear of the Lord, we act differently. We persuade men. Go to 2 Corinthians Chapter 5. And while you're going there, think about uh, James 3. Let not many be teachers. Hey, stricter judgment. Not for sin, but for the deeds in the body. We'll see that. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before, in, in the presence of, that's the word, the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Recompensed, that means rewarded in a sense, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We tend to think we go to eternity when there's no bad going to be talked of or anything. You know what? We're going to see this life. We're going to be recompensed for those things, not for sin. And notice what he says here. He says, with that recompense, good or bad, and if he says the same thing, and actually take turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see the same principle here. Our sins are as far as the east as the west, but what we do now is important. God is not so unjust as to not reward us for those things done in the body. Jesus said, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. Is with me. And that happens in his presence. And that's what Paul, I believe, is looking forward to, that presentation of believers. 
And you see, to the extent the word of God worked in our lives, to which we built on the foundation of Christ and his word, we're going to be rewarded. First Corinthians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is trying to address the pride in Corinth. They're saying, I'm of this guy, I'm of that guy, this and this and this. He wants to make, make it point that no one should boast. And he's going to say basically, who are Paul? Who was Apollos? We're nothing but servants. So he says here in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. So then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything. This is a great lesson, by the way. Don't get prideful, spiritually speaking. God's giving you a gift. It's all God. Don't get prideful. Paul would tell the Galatians, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Right? Because God gets all the glory. God is to get the glory. And so he says here, uh, neither, says, he says, uh, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. They're functioning in the body of Christ, doing God's will. But each one, that's individually, will receive his own reward according to his labor. Okay? For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building, these analogies here, according to the grace of God, which I was, was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul brought forth the word of God that God had illumined to him. And another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. Because it will be, is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now the work he's speaking about here are believers, by the way. It's people. I planted, Paul's watered. He shared the word of God. Paul's watered that. They were built up on Christ. It's the church. He says, if any man's work which he has built upon remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved as so as through fire. What you do now is important. And what I mean what you do, not what you do in your own strength, but what you do in terms of trusting in Christ and obeying him at work with your family in the body of Christ, relying on Jesus. When you rely on Jesus and he works through you, you're going to be rewarded. How amazing is that? When you don't do it, but he does it. When you trust in Christ. And it's eternal rewards. It's forever and ever and ever. Now, when it's something that's forever, that's really important to invest in that. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven, right? But also you can experience eternal loss. Loss of rewards forever and ever and ever. If you don't depend on Christ. If Christ is not the one that's functioning through you, right? If it's not built on Christ. So then... We will come before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a presentation. And Paul has put all his marbles in presenting these Thessalonians. They are his hope that they're going to be and bring, they're going to be mature and bring God glory because they're true believers. 
They've truly been saved and they are truly changing. And he is investing in them eternally. He desires to build their faith up. They are his hope. He says back in our passage, for who is our hope? Who's our hope? Who is our joy? Who is our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming when everything is seen for what it really is? Isn't that great? You see, everyone has some type of a hope that they look forward to in the future. Many hope to fulfill their dreams, hope to return on their investments for later on, for retirement, 401ks, you know, maybe hope for their children to surround them and bless them, take care of them when they're advanced, hope in peaceful latter years, whatever it might be. Paul doesn't speak of any of these things. His future hope was not one of emptiness or sorrow either. His hope was in seeing what God had done through him, through the word in these Thessalonians. Glorious reality for all eternity. When you see the work of God and the people he allowed you to love and minister with. Tremendous reality. Who is our hope? Is it not you? You're who we're hoping in. You're who we're, we're banking on in a sense. You're our future joy. That's what it would be. We hope to see you presented holy and blameless in a way that glorifies Christ. That glorifies Christ. So with that, he said, who is our hope? And then he says, who is our joy? Who's our joy? Who's going to cause us to rejoice when Christ comes? Isn't it you? When we see what God did and allowed us to participate in, in your lives, when you're presented before him? Who's our joy? It's you. It's you. See, there's a principle in Scripture that those who are focused on God's will and God's word and God's ways rejoice in what God rejoices in. You see, and God wants us to become like Jesus Christ. And if you are rejoicing in his things, then you're going to rejoice when people become like Jesus Christ. Let me share some passages. What does John say in uh, 2 John? Turn to 2 John. 2 John, verse 4. It's right before Revelation, really close. John says, I was very glad, I was joyful, to find some of your children walking in the truth. Oh, what a joy it is. I tell you, it's a grieving thing when believers aren't walking the truth. You know what they're doing is wrong, right? That grieves your heart. They walk in the truth. Oh boy, what a joy. He says, just as we have received the commandment to do so from the Father. And now I ask you, lady, not only as writing to you a new commandment, but to one which you've heard from the beginning, that we love one another. Walking the truth, they were loving one another. First John chapter 5, how do we know we love the children of God? When we obey his commands, but they're not burdensome. He says here, he's very, very, very glad to find this. And he says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Oh, so joyful to see them walking, obeying Christ Jesus in the context, loving one another. Oh, what joy. Then go to 3 John, just right next door. Verse 3. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. You're living your life according to the truth of God. He says here, I have no greater joy 
than this, than to hear of my children walking in the truth. These were Paul's, back in our passage, Paul's spiritual children. No greater joy looking forward to that presentation of maturity before the Lord. See, the Apostle Paul was desiring that greatly. He's desiring that greatly. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians, and I want to go to chapter 3 again, and then we'll come back to our passage in chapter 2. Verse 5, chapter 3. For this reason, when I can do it longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought good news of your faith and your love, and that you always think kindly of us, Longing to see us just as we long to see you. Notice that? We talked about that earlier. He says, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we are comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. This is what floats our boats. We really live if you stand firm in the Lord. So what does he say here? For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy? with which we rejoice before God on your account. When you see true believers truly following the Lord, truly standing firm, that brings joy. That brings joy. You see, the Apostle Paul was focused on the things that God deemed important, the things that bring, bring joy, believers becoming like Christ, walking in the truth. These Thessalonians were true believers. They were his future hope and his present joy, but in future joy, as we'll see. You see, there's going to be so much joy when we are presented before the Lord, when we see what God does through the, the faith in the midst of the trials that we have endured. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, when people see what God did in others, God gets all the glory when they're presented before him. Praise, honor, and glory, right? That's what Paul's looking forward to. God being supremely glorified through what he was blessed to participate in that God did through his word in the lives of these Thessalonians. Wow. You are our joy, our hope, our joy. And then lastly, he says, our crown of exaltation. Literally, crown of boasting. Crown of boasting. The term crown, Stephanos, uh, speaks of a, a wreath. It spoke of a, an adornment worn on the, around the head given to an athlete as an award in an athletic contest. It was given to the victor, to the one who was victorious. You're our crown of victory. You're our victory crown. And what do we know about crowns in Scripture? There's a lot of passages about it. I'm not going to go through them all. But we know that... When you run the race, you run for, you know, the earthly people run for a perishable crown, right? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9. But we run for that which is imperishable. Imperishable. 1 Corinthians 9. We know that there are many crowns spoken of. Paul speaks of Timothy, the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy, that the Lord has will award him on Paul on that day, 2 Timothy 4. 
James speaks of the crown of life for those who endure trials. There's the unfading crown of glory for elders if they shepherd well the flock, 1 Peter 5. Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. You are my victor's wreath. You are the crown of victory, of exalting. Because when we see what God has done in you, he'll get all the glory. Crown of boasting. When we see what really happened, they were true believers. They were his hope, his joy, and his crown of exaltation. Who is it? Is it not you, Thessalonians, in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? These were his hope, his joy, crown of exaltation. Invest in the right things. Invest in what God deems important, those he delivered and saved from their sins in Jesus Christ. Invest in that and those he will deliver. So then, Paul greatly desired to see these Thessalonians before the presence of the Lord. They were his hope. They were his joy and his crown. And then notice he kind of summarizes in the last portion of this again. He's explaining, hey, this is why I want to see you so bad. This is why I want to build you up in the faith because I'm looking forward to your presentation before Christ in eternity where he'll be glorified and you'll be rewarded and he'll be glorified forever and ever. I'm looking forward to that. Notice back in our passage, verse 20. He says, for you are present tense, not future. We talked future last verse. You are present tense our glory and our joy. You are true believers, not fakers, not make-believers, not ones you're wondering, is that person really saved or not? You didn't wonder that about these Thessalonians. They truly manifest faith in Christ. You are our glory and joy. It's quite possible that's where we get this phrase in our society, our pride and joy. You are a pride and joy in a sense, right? That speaks of a treasured object that brings great pleasure. Treasured object that brings great pleasure. You Thessalonians are what I treasure, and you bring great joy. That's what he treasured. They had been changed by Jesus Christ. They were Paul's glory and joy. So of course he wanted to see them. Of course the accusations of him not caring were totally wrong. He wanted to see them. Because his eternal hope was tied up in that. He hoped in Jesus, but in what God would do through them. You are our hope, our joy, and our crown of exaltation. So then, how do we know God's word is working in our lives? Obviously, we're going to have difficulty for obeying Christ. But secondly, we're going to enter into eternally rewarding relationships. Let me ask you, are you in a relationship like that? Are you being fed? Are you going to be someone's crown in joy? Are you responding to the word of God? And those who are teaching and sharing the word of God, are you feeding? Do you have an attitude towards those you're shepherding like Paul had? They were his glory and joy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this picture of the heart of your servant, Paul. Lord, if we're all honest at times, we don't feel this way towards one another. Lord, correct us. Reprove us first, correct us, that we would see your people differently. Those who have been saved by your grace through your son, Jesus, who will be uh, presented before him, holy and blameless, without reproach. 
eternal realities, Lord God. Help us to see them. And Father, I thank you that this life is not it. And that uh, although there are temporal trials, you are building us up, you are changing us, you are growing us in the grace and knowledge of your Son, that we would bring him glory forever and ever. I pray our hearts would be changed by what we've heard today, that we would invest our desires and our affections in the things that please you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.